You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 16th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The death of Alexei Navalny reverberates from an Arctic penal colony across the globe. World leaders gather not just in Munich, but in Dubai, and Swedish duo Roxette gain a new lease on life in Brazil. I'm Chris Chermak. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermak. My guests today, Stephen Diao, Natalia Gumenyuk and Andrew Tuck, discuss the day's big stories. Plus, we'll be checking in with the Foreign Desk team at the Munich Security Conference. And Fernando Augusto Pacheco brings us a curious musical cover story from Brazil. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily, and I'm Chris Chermak. Reactions of shock and sadness today after news that jailed Putin critic Alexei Navalny has died in prison. According to officials, he allegedly lost consciousness after a short walk. The United Nations Human Rights Office says it is appalled by the news and has called for an investigation. Emmanuel Macron spoke of anger and indignation. And Joe Biden, just in the last hour, laid the blame for Navalny's death squarely at the feet of Vladimir Putin. There have also been a steady stream of Russians laying flowers in Moscow's Solovetsky Stone, outside the former headquarters of the KGB, as well as other monuments. We will hear shortly from the Russia analyst Stephen Diao, but first, our colleague Andrew Muller looks back on Alexei Navalny's life. There are few higher-risk 21st-century occupations than making an enemy of Russian President Vladimir Putin. To cross Putin or the courtiers and henchmen who anticipate his whims is to invite a demise both tragically premature and grotesquely picturesque. It is characteristic of tyrants that merely possessing supreme power is not sufficient. They must also be able to demonstrate that they can exercise that omnipotence absolutely as they please and devil-take anyone who seeks to impede them. These are people who are trying to steal my country, and I strongly disagree with it. I'm not going to be uh, you know, a kind of speechless person right now. I'm not going to keep silent. Alexei Anatolievich Navalny was born on June 4, 1976, in Butin, a small town in the orbit of Moscow, and grew up further south in Obninsk. I'm 41 years old. It means that actually I'm a guy from the Soviet Union. I was a young pioneer. I had my red tie. My father was a military, and I was very proud that my father is guarding Mother Russia from evil Americans with their bombs and missiles. Actually, my biggest memory that I'm, as a child, standing in line maybe sometimes for hours to just buy milk. He studied law at the People's Friendship University of Russia in Moscow and later furthered his education at Yale University in the United States. Navalny became a national figure in Russia in his early 30s. He bought small shareholdings in various dodgy companies, of which Russia had no shortage, gained access to their accounts and posted his findings on a blog. Did these documents that you got prove corruption? Oh, absolutely. I work as a whistleblower and I'm not afraid to uh, announce the names. 
Few Russians needed to be told that their country was being looted by unaccountable kleptocrats and or their enablers in government, but seeing the figures provided catharsis, if not justice. Navalny, who relayed his discoveries across social media with a dry wit, attracted a colossal online following. When he spoke in public, thousands turned out. In 2011, he founded the Anti-Corruption Foundation, an NGO dedicated to investigating malfeasance by public officials. Again, there wasn't a lack of material. And Mr. Putin puts his relatives, his closest friends, his colleagues from the KGB, at the chiefs of this company. And that's why they're controlling the whole economy. Inevitably, Russian authorities began taking an interest. Navalny was regularly arrested, but chose to regard this thus far low-level harassment as essentially free advertising. In 2013, he ran for mayor of Moscow. And very possibly not coincidentally, was sentenced to five years on altogether dubious fraud charges. He was freed pending an appeal and came second in a six-candidate race with 27% of the vote, which, in the peculiar context of Russia, was read as a startling and heartening challenge to Putin's rarely resisted authority. Navalny, by now the closest thing Russia possessed to a leader of the opposition, took the obvious, if nevertheless chaotic, next step and in 2016 declared that he would seek Russia's presidency in 2018. During my campaign, I spent every fifth day in the jail. So now I'm kind of, you know, used to it. Nothing new for me. It's, it's became a routine of my life. The incumbent, or those acting on his behalf, stepped up their response accordingly. Navalny was repeatedly arrested, assaulted with a chemical agent, which temporarily cost him the sight in one eye, and finally banned from standing. My uh, doctor in the hospital said, well, Alexei, you should be prepared that you will be blind for one eye. And so I even start to think about kind of, you know, I will be such kind of pirate with the, with the patch. There was another possible chemical attack while he was again in prison in 2019, this time serving 30 days for organizing an anti-government protest. In August 2020, the stakes were raised higher still. Navalny became suddenly extremely ill on a flight from Tomsk to Moscow. After the aircraft made an emergency landing in Omsk, Navalny was rushed to a local hospital from where he was airlifted to Berlin. He spent 26 days in a coma. Doctors confirmed that Navalny had been dosed with a nerve agent of the Novichok strain, a tactic previously deployed against the Kremlin's enemies at home and abroad to demonstrate both the Russian regime's ruthlessness and its total disinterest in what anyone may think of it. A farcical coda ensued when Navalny, sufficiently recovered, elicited an apparent confession from his putative assassin by calling him pretending to be a senior FSB officer seeking to establish what went wrong with the attempted hit. If Navalny's poisoners weren't trying to kill him, they certainly weren't trying not to. They may at least have assumed that Navalny had gotten the message that staying out of Russia might prove conducive to a longer life. Navalny had not. 
He returned to Moscow in January 2021 and was, as he doubtless anticipated, arrested. Once again, Navalny embraced imprisonment as an advertisement, picking this moment to release video of what he claimed was Putin's billion-dollar Black Sea Palace, a vast and ludicrous lair with its own skating rink and casino, among other expensive accoutrements, difficult to reconcile with a life on Russian government wages. We do a lot of work with the drones because for us it's a best way to show this way of life. When you publish this footage of the yachts, of these palaces, of this real estate, and you, uh, you can show documents, look, this guy have a relatively modest salary, but look at this house. Putin, as usual, denied everything, but tens of millions of Russians watched it. Navalny was tried on an assortment of charges that both he and his persecutors knew to be absurd, the absurdity being, as always, at least part of the point of the exercise, an assertion by those in charge that reality is what they declare it to be, that 2 plus 2 equals whatever they decide it does. Navalny, like many Russian dissidents before him, was exiled to a penal colony. And they have a lot of nicknames and euphemism for me, like uh, this gentleman, this guy, this convict. But uh, they are thinking about me. And believe me, they are afraid of me, afraid of us. So it's, uh, that is much more important for us than mentioning my name. Alexei Navalny could not have expected to reach an advanced age. He was of that caste of activists who factor in the prospect that whatever progress they might make will benefit not themselves, but those who survive to further the path they cleared. Such is the only kind of opponent that Vladimir Putin's Russia invites, the kind who knows full well what they're up against and goes up against it anyway. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Alexei Navalny, who has died aged 47. Now, as mentioned, there has been strong reaction from leaders around the world and at the Munich Security Conference. Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalnaya, received a huge round of applause as she spoke emotionally just a few hours after digesting the news herself, vowing that Russia would be brought to justice. And our own foreign desk team at the Munich Security Conference have spoken today with the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who had this to say. Well, I think we're, we're all shocked uh, and deeply, deeply distressed. Uh, and I think it's a very good indication of what uh, this regime is, uh, is capable of, uh, of doing uh, and uh, a constant uh, reminder uh, about uh, the need uh, to continue to support uh, Ukraine as uh, they are standing up for their own uh, freedom and independence. The Greek Prime Minister there, the Foreign Desk team, also spoke to Ingrida Simonite, Prime Minister of the Russia bordering country of Lithuania. We know that we have criminal regime in, in, in Kremlin who are uh, chasing after their opponents and, and, and the people they consider to be their enemies, not only within Russia, but also outside Russia as we know from Salisbury's and, and, mm-hmm. and other cases that were made, made public. So, uh, I mean, if you ask me whether that would surprise me, no. Uh, and even if it, is a, uh, if it were a, a, a natural death because of heart attack, as 
somebody would say or something given the the whole story of poisoning and and limiting access to medical treatment and everything i mean this would still be an assassination for me the lithuanian prime minister there in munich now Listening to all of that was Stephen Dial, the Russia analyst and regular Monocle Radio contributor. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's just start with what was your personal reaction to the news? My personal reaction was one of horror, but not surprise. Um, I think that, as ironically, there is a link to the war in Ukraine. And I think as that's gone on, longer, uh, I've been worried more and more that, that Navalny might be killed. Uh, and uh, I think it's correct to say that Navalny has been murdered, not that Navalny has been killed. I'll explain why. When he was first arrested, uh, the latest time in 2021, when he came back from Germany, um, there was a lot of talk that, well, if he dies in prison, Putin will have a martyr on his hands. And I think in that year between January 2021 and 13 months until February 2022, when Putin started the war on Ukraine, um, Putin might have been wary of that um, because there could have been mass demonstrations and and there's nothing that uh, he fears more than uh, an uprising in his own country. Um, What we've seen since the start of the war is not just the brutality that Russia has inflicted upon Ukraine, but the repressive measures inside Russia itself have been tightened more and more. You can go to prison for calling what he calls a special military operation a war, even though it's a war. Uh, You can go to prison for discrediting the Russian army by telling the truth about what they're doing in Ukraine. So the the, the screws have really been tightened down. And I think it got to a point, and I fear this isn't a real example of it, where Putin says, to hell with all of you, I don't care what you think, and I don't care about this man. He never would use Navalny's name. Uh, he, he always, as, as Navalny said in one of those clips, he would talk about this, this gentleman or this convict. He never, ever spoke about, spoke Navalny's name in public. And what I think, there were, there, there's two things recently which were particularly significant. One was that in December, Navalny went missing. Suddenly, his lawyers, some of whom had already been jailed themselves, but uh, and, and, and his close associates couldn't find him. It was just not known where he was. And then after two weeks, he turned up in this labor camp in the, the, the Russian north, inside the Arctic Circle. In December, in a harsh Russian winter, he's put in a, um, a, a, a labor camp in the Arctic Circle. Also... He was continually for made up in, fra- in, in fractions, being put in a solitary confinement cell. Only last week he was for the, put in a solitary confinement cell for the 27th time uh, since 2021. Um, so the, the screws on him have been tightening. Um, and then only yesterday, on Thursday of this week, uh, he was actually seen on video um, and making a joke to one of the judges, who, of course, they're all in the pay of the Kremlin, um, saying, oh, can you give me some money? Because uh, my money's running out. And he looked very well. A lawyer saw him on Wednesday, and he looked very well. And suddenly today, he's dead. Now, what I'm saying, why I say he's murdered, is because this has been a gradual process. And if we hear that he, he's died from a heart attack or something. Nevertheless, it's been brought on by the tightening of the screws on him. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the truth was that he was, for example, beaten to death like the, the lawyer Sergei Magnitsky some years ago who was working for um, the American financier Bill Browder. Um, that, that sort of thing happens in, in Russian prisons. And as I said, I, I think the chances of this happening have been growing over the last two years. 
having laid all of that out the way you did, what do you imagine the reactions of the people in Russia to be? I mean, exactly as you said, this is a different time there than it would have been even a couple of years ago before the invasion of Ukraine. Do you even imagine that the news, like how has the news been disseminated? How would it have been disseminated? I assume Russians will have heard of this somehow. What would their reaction be like? Russians have heard of it. There was a very bold report on Russian Channel One television um, basically saying that Navalny had died. Um, also, of course, more computer-savvy young Russians in particular have VPNs, and so they do actually get news from outside Russia. And one report I saw on the excellent Medusa, uh, who are now operating outside Russia but have an excellent network within, uh, was that within an hour or two of the news coming out, already people were laying flowers with Navalny's picture at... Monuments which you find in various, often provincial Russian cities, smaller Russian cities, uh, monuments to political, those who died in, in political repression in Stalin's time, the victims of Stalinism. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is that people are realising that there are, again, political prisoners. We know there are hundreds of political prisoners. Vladimir Karamuzai is a, a particularly good example of that, who's, who's serving 25 years for criticising the war. Um, uh, and so... There's already been that. That's a you know it's a small gesture perhaps, but it's a it's a first gesture. What I think Putin is gambling on is that the way he's frightened the population with prison sentences, with beatings, with with violence from the security forces in the last two years, in particular, is that people will be too afraid to go out on the streets. Russians. Um, and joined by foreigners um, in various countries, have now been protesting this afternoon outside Russian embassies in various countries, including here in London. Um, but there will be Putin has, has taken a gamble that he thinks that the way he's frightened the population is enough to stop mass demonstrations in Russia in the next 48 hours, next week, whenever. Um, we'll have to see whether that happens or not. Just. Just finally, Stephen, in terms of the world's reaction, I wonder if you get any sense that there might be ramifications to this. We heard from U.S. President Joe Biden just in the last hour or so. He did lay the blame for this uh, at Vladimir Putin's doorstep, but at the same time, there was a question to him reminding him of comments he had made in the past of the kind of reactions there would be if Putin dared to do this. And even he himself sort of said, well... That was three years ago before we had taken any actions against Russia. We have now taken actions against Russia with Ukraine, therefore suggesting there would not be any ramifications. Do you get any sense that there will be a, a reaction to this? Should there be a reaction to this from the world other than words of shock? I feel there should be a reaction. Um, I don't think that any more sanctions can be slapped on unless they, you know, we don't know for now, for example, who, who is directly responsible. If, if names were to come out, then perhaps sanctions could be slapped on them. But I think the reaction will be, uh, and particularly perhaps in the United States, uh, that this will be linked to the war in Ukraine and therefore it will actually make, peop make people and governments think this is another reason why we really need to help Ukraine because there is this direct link uh, undoubtedly between um, what's happened to Navalny and the war in Ukraine uh, and that is one thing which the West can do to step up the pressure on, on Putin. Um, Putin's regime is a murderous regime. This is not the first political murder or uh, that, that Putin has carried out and of course he's responsible also for the murder of hundreds of thousands 
thousands, not only of Ukrainians, but of his own citizens, own Russians, who he keeps sending into the meat grinder of the of the war in Ukraine, this senseless war that, that uh, he started for no logical reason. So I think that if one thing can come out of this, I won't even call it a good thing, but one thing that could come out from the side of the West, it would be a renewal of the support for Ukraine because that's one way that Putin can be defeated. Thanks very much, Stephen Diel, for joining us. You are listening to The Monocle Daily. Well, now to Ukraine, which next week will mark a rather grim anniversary, as it will be two years since Russia invaded the country. I'm joined here in studio by Natalia Gumenyuk. Not quite an in-house voice, but listeners will know Natalia as a regular contributor as a journalist to Monocle Radio. Natalia, welcome to London. It's very good to have you here. Uh, Very nice, finally, to be in the studio. Yes, absolutely. And you're... Here for a number of meetings, conferences, you're presenting some of your own work, and we'll get to some of that uh, in this interview. But I did want to ask you, first of all, for your reaction to the news of Alexei Navalny's passing. What, what What was your reaction? What was your feeling to that? How is that seen in Ukraine? Personally, I, I physically feel sick. You know, it just like you I thought I'm already used to so many things and I, I can't be swayed or broken but it's it's really painful and uh, you know I'm not now in Kiev but I know that there are various views on, about Navalny in Ukraine because somehow he didn't get along well with some of the Ukrainians being so focused on, on, on Russia you know not really but you know I know people who worked with him I know bit his team and it just devastating, and it was expected that something like that coming when I had a chance to talk to the Russian colleagues and friends, and Navalny's name was there. It was like, they will kill him in prison sooner or later. And this inevitability is a bit paralyzing, but you still delay this thought. So even today, you know, I, I can't properly read the news, you know, like, because it doesn't matter. You know, for me, all these things, what happened, who said what, uh, he was really force of nature, extremely charismatic person, and uh, I have rather doom and grim uh, ideas about what would happen next, because, you know, I understand that such event like murdering or killing or the death of the famous dissident in the Russian prison may create something, you know, would it be a protest or anything, but it feels like it's more paralyzing. It just mm-hmm. like he was the, the the force of nature. Who would organize the people for something? Uh, all the people around were really really relied a lot on him, despite he was in prison. But you you just think you still think like oh how you can be that cruel because he's so famous, and maybe you won't dare. And does Navalny bother that much the Kremlin? You know wh- how much he can do uh, from the prison, but they still. <laughs> He's he's still dead, so again, like it's it's physically very difficult. Like kind of, it's it's really a physical reaction of your body on like how devastating it is. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, was there in that sense? You said that his relationship with Ukraine was was tricky sometimes, but I do wonder with this news and also, of course, as I mentioned, the the anniversary kind of coming up. Was there ever a feeling that Alexei Navalny? 
could be somebody, would have been somebody that that might have challenged Putin? Was that was that talked about in Ukraine? How how was that kind of seen before or after the war began? Frankly? I think that there are two different. Uh, there are, in fact, like various opinions and opposite. There are the people seeing like, okay, he's not that much into Ukraine, and he kind of doesn't understand this imperial nature of the Russian war. So, you, you know, and he could have, for instance, been more outspoken really against the war. But, uh, you know, pragmatically, you understand that the strong opposition to Russia is definitely in the Ukrainian interest, disregarding how they are. You know, how the issue is about effectiveness. If there was one person who could challenge Vladimir Putin even from behind the bars, that was him. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it brings nothing to, to anybody. And again, Ukrainians might be offended with some of the comments, but I think it's, it's, it's not really anything to discuss today. And if somebody does, I, I won't find it appropriate. Yeah, understandable. Well, I I did want to turn to some of the work you're doing because you are here in London in part to present documentaries from your own project, the the Reckoning Project, uh, which you have a role in. It's not just in Ukraine, but it's obviously been playing a huge role in Ukraine. Just tell us about the Reckoning Project and your role in it. So this is the initiative of Ukrainian and international reporters, journalists, uh, lawyers and analysts to document war crimes. So we as journalists do exactly what actually what exactly the journalists should do without any in any way violating the basic rules of the professions. It's just more narrow because we speak to the direct witnesses of the war crimes, not just people who seen something or who were somewhere, but every person we talked within this first days of the invasion uh, within the reckoning project is a potential potentially can be in the trial and is potentially can be recognized either a victim or witness. And uh, we we have the team of the on-the-ground reporters, uh, but also in Ukraine, based all over the place, which within these years talk to the people. We're speaking about hundreds of people already. And we do films, we do, you know, articles, we do other things to explain what's going on, but based on a very, very factual, verified data, which can, you know, can go through through the legal challenge. At the same time, we have another part of the team, including the lawyers who think how to use it in possible courts, how to use those the very same testimonies and uh, do like submissions to international bodies. Would it be all UN or the OEC? One of our co-founders, Janine Di Giovanni, she also covered uh, like a lot of wars within the last decades uh, in Bosnia, in Rwanda, in, in the Middle East. So we're really also coming from the thinking that impunity leads for further crimes. Uh, I just like being here had a chance to check and, and speak to our lawyers. They are based here. They're of Syrian origin. So, you know, like we're looking at the Russian crimes, not just as uh, Russian crimes in Ukraine, but the fact that the Russia hasn't been stopped, you know, like in Georgia and then in Syria. They enjoyed that impunity. So they were that reckless in Ukraine. So it is. It's like a combination of journalism and the legal expertise. And I feel as a 
co-founder uh, of the project also I'm probably always one of the most optimistic person <laughs> maybe don't that I does I don't sound like that today but I'm generally like the one which you know believes very strongly in justice in journalism but I feel that the journalists usually feel that you know we write the stories and so what so we give you know the way to say that it's not just they can be used you know for history for the records uh, these records can you know survive and maybe this uh, truth won't be denied while also the lawyers today complain that unless there is public support and concern there is there won't be movement of opening the cases investigating so i think that in the end this combination helps us all in the very dark times to pursue and know that bit by bit something in is uh, something can happen Natalia Gumenyuk, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to the Monocle Daily and I'm Chris Chermak. Now, world leaders, as we mentioned before, have descended on Germany for this year's Munich Security Conference, the leading forum for debating the most pressing international security issues. Monocle's Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk team are there on the ground, speaking to various delegates. They also include Heather Conley, president of the German Marshall Fund. Andrew began by asking... Heather, if NATO nations have to assume Trump is not bluffing about withdrawing from the alliance. You know, I, I think we have to take the former president seriously. I think uh, what he is suggesting he would do if he became president, whether that's putting 10% tariffs globally or uh, not providing protection if NATO countries do not spend 2% of GDP, I, I think, yes, we have to start understanding the ramifications of that. But I will say, regardless of who's in the White House, Europe needs to increase its defense spending. It has to prepare for an increasingly unstable world of which it understands not only the conflict in Ukraine, the growing conflict, regional conflict in the Middle East, and as tensions are rising in the Indo-Pacific. So as much as I know these comments are highly inflammatory, they are destabilizing to our allies. If you put that aside, as difficult that is, as it is, it doesn't change what Europe must do. Um, and so this is where I think we have to stop, uh, and we have to learn this, and I'm speaking more to myself mm. as, as well <laughs> as advice to, to others. We have to manage ourselves better over the next nine months because the more the former president gets all that attention, he's going to lean into it and do it even more. We've got nine months to go. So I think we have to, yes, these are his plans, we have to prepare for them, and Europe is going to prepare for them regardless. And stop giving him that attention and energy, be very focused, be very serious, be very focused on what needs to be done, and probably not give him that energy, which it continues to fuel mm. him. But is that message perhaps not better made to Europe by a broadly friendly actual Atlanticist administration. It could be communicated by a Biden-Harris administration. You cannot assume that the United States will always be here. You've got to stop thinking like that. So I think what the administration needs to do is, number one, reflect that this... 
in some ways, I know, again, this is really hard to hear. This is nothing new for an American former president, current president, to ask Europe to spend more. President mm. Eisenhower asked Europe to spend 4% of GDP. This has been a constant since the formation of NATO 75 years ago, of making sure that Europe did increase its security and defense. What is obviously incredibly new is when Mr. Trump was president, to threaten withdrawal and then to increasingly threaten withdrawal. That That is very new. Um, but yes, the administration, I would argue, not only has to, to do and uh, talk more to its European allies to how, to how to manage this period as best we can, I would argue the Biden administration actually needs to open up an entirely new conversation with the American people. Because if we're contemplating uh, withdrawal from NATO, mm. the American people need to understand the costs of that. And, you know, I, I don't want the United States to have to experience the cost without understanding what is at stake. So I would argue the conversation has to first and foremost start with the American people. This is their security as well. And then, of course, how to counsel our European allies and partners to, to manage this period. It's, it's going to be very difficult. We, we should talk about the other leader who is managing to haunt this event from afar, who is, of course, Vladimir Putin, who is very much in office in Russia. And I, I want to go back to the Kremlin playbook, which I know you helped write for the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. There is this idea being increasingly floated in recent weeks from NATO itself and from various NATO nations that we have to apprehend the idea that Vladimir Putin does actually have ambitions beyond even Ukraine. Do you think that's the case? So as I understand Vladimir Putin's designs, which you can find in his so-called historical essay from mm. July of 2021. This was his, his strange lockdown screed about the <laughs> mystical destiny of Russia and Ukraine's people. Well, and that screed continued with the Tucker Carlson interview, so it's not just for that that moment. His interpretation of what restoring historical Russia means is sweeping. Mm. And I think we have to take him at his word. I think we are now seeing intelligent assessments coming out of Norway, out of Estonia, that speak to, um, you know, looking at a three, five, 10 year horizon where now that Russia has gone on a full war footing economy, which of course is going to be devastating to their future economic potential, mm. but this does speak to a regime that requires constant confrontation with the West. And now we see that just being accelerated. So we have to prepare for that future. But yes, I believe we have to be very prepared for um, Russia to challenge NATO, challenge Article 5. I mean, it's being challenged both ways from Vladimir Putin and from the former president, at, you know, coming from different different ends. I mean, that being the case, does NATO have to move more quickly, do you think, to, uh, I guess, buttress itself against Russia? When, when you were Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, you were involved with the enlargement uh, of NATO, and there are questions and arguments about how quickly Ukraine and Georgia perhaps should be ushered in, perhaps Moldova, though I know there are issues with Moldova's constitution. But how fast really should NATO be moving to basically try and sweep everybody in that it possibly can. Well, I think there, step one, what NATO is doing now and what was agreed to by all the leaders at uh, last year's NATO summit in Lithuania 
which I think was the most underappreciated announcement other than obviously welcoming Finland into the alliance, was these regional defense plans. What NATO has to do right now, the 31, soon to be 32 members, is have defensive plans in case the Kremlin would decide to try to enter NATO territory. At the same time, what we need to do and what we're doing with Ukraine is getting a, a relationship that as, is as close as possible, and then we wait for that window to open when Ukraine can join um, and it, it wants to join, because clearly the Ukrainian military is now one of the most capable European mm. militaries. And you talk about what the laboratory of learning NATO kit against Russian, now Iranian, now North Korean hardware is this laboratory and their adaptation uh, in drone warfare is something that I think uh, the entire alliance will benefit from. So, you know, I'm hoping that the Washington summit uh, in July when we celebrate the 75th anniversary of NATO, this, that summit is about the next 75 years and being prepared for exactly that type of, of warfare, of which, again, Ukraine and, and NATO's close cooperation is going to strengthen NATO. It's just a question of timing of when they join NATO. It's, uh, to me, it's not a question of if. That was Andrew Muller speaking to Heather Conley, president of the German Marshall Fund. You're listening to Monocle Daily. Now, while today is the day of the Munich Security Conference, a little earlier this week was the World Governments Summit in Dubai. It's a pretty massive annual event of some 38,000 attendees, including world leaders and ministers, observers and media organizations, and last but not least, our very own Andrew Tuck, Monaco's editor-in-chief, who joins me now here in studio. Hello, Andrew. Have you been able to sleep? I have. Uh, yeah, an interesting few days, but uh, just back from Dubai and uh, a very interesting place to see the world from. So you, I think you'll know from these conferences that somehow just relocating yourself to another geography, the people who come to town, who find it easier to get there, suddenly it's a different audience. And how you see the world looking out suddenly seems very different. So lots of very different conversations. And I think you'd have, say, for example, at the World Economic Forum or or many of the conversations that are going on in London or Paris or New York, it's a different view of the world. What was the energy like in that sense, given this kind of different view, different set of people? What was the purpose in your mind? Well, I think the UAE sees a, a potential for it to be something of a neutral ground for people to come and talk about all sorts of things. But oddly, they didn't really seem to want to be that engaged with the conversations that are, ha- are happening in Ukraine or even in Gaza. You, you would imagine that mm. being in the Middle East, that Gaza would be top of the agenda. I did hear it mentioned, often in tangential ways. But the Ukraine conversation, I just heard nobody talking about it. Now, what's interesting is, you know, for Dubai, that there's a backdrop to much of the conversation that happened at the conference because one of the key ministries involved is the Ministry of AI, which is a a really interesting ministry and, and, and an amazing minister who's only 33 years old, who is trying to make Dubai and the UAE a centre for how we use AI going forward and how we use technology. So interestingly, lots of the the, the biggest tech people are beginning to settle in the region. So Pavel Durov, who runs Telegram, he lives in the UAE. Some of the people running the biggest funds for AI, they now live in the UAE. 
they're being they're using their regulations and their changes in regulations to pull these people in. So all these conversations happening on stage, even when it was about government, it often came back to the the idea of how do you use technology to do things better, whether that was for healthcare, education, good governance. And even when the tr- the conversations were were tricky or showed some of the the potential risks, I felt that everybody seemed to say, actually, there's lots of good potential here. There's good potential about how we change in the future and that there are also opportunities for us to collaborate in more interesting ways. In that sense, did you get the feeling that this summit, I mean, compared to some others and the focus, the way you're describing it there, was maybe less about diplomacy? I mean, there's things like the Antalya Diplomacy Forum, which I went to a couple of years ago as well. They were also in this region kind of setting themselves up as this neutral space to talk but very much about diplomacy and foreign policy. The Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers met their U.S. envoy, met the Taliban's minister there for the first time in a long time. So that was very much about all of these tensions. It sounds like you're saying Dubai, by contrast, is almost more about the well-functioning of governments, learning from each other in AI and kind of a whole host of other areas rather than about the regional sort of political tensions certainly not about the regional political tensions but i think there that you know there's lots of bilaterals that go on on the side of the conference and the likes of turkey's president erdogan was there narendra modi was there so when these teams come to town there are certainly conversations happening about trade and diplomacy that don't happen on stage particularly Mm. but then i don't know There were some other good conversations. The former British Prime Minister Tony Blair was there and he was in conversation with Eddie Rama, the the, the leader of Albania. And again, it was a conversation about good governance, about Mm -hmm. how, and again, about this technology, because, you know, Eddie Rama said, look, you know, we're in a position where we can use AI, we can use technology to perhaps leapfrog now some of our neighbours who are a bit slower, old school about how they're doing things. We know that we have to change and move fast and and get our economy ready to be hopefully they what they hope is to be a, a member of the eu of course and again he gave an amazing example he said look in the past when you tried to do all the paperwork just the basic paperwork to join the eu it took so long to find the data to get it all organized and he said now with the use of technology and with ai we can do that so much faster we can be prepared for putting forward bids to enter the EU, we can we can meet all the demands for information about our economy and about our society so much quicker. So again, even he was saying, look, we're not in the EU. You know, and and maybe in other contexts, he'd be saying, why are we not a member of the EU? Come and let us in. You know, we're good guys here. But actually, he was just being practical. It was all about good governance, simple things he could do, and a really kind of practical conversation, I felt. So what was your personal takeaway then if you can reflect now kind of being back here what was your role also for for monocle and what do you take away for monocle in that respect i guess because i present the the urbanist the podcast we have here on monocle radio that i was asked to um look after a series of talks which are about future cities and i had everyone from the head of the undp on to um professor carla ratti from mit Talking to uh, Kochkom Vorokom, who's a woman who runs a thing called Porous City, which is about how you m- make cities more porous. So when you have you don't have floods, she works in Thailand. And again, I was I was really impressed that the the, the quality of conversation, 
But then also the technology came back into it because we had a guy who runs an organization, a company called Zipline. They started in Rwanda. They're a drone delivery company. And he went there again because the regulation allowed him to operate and to try this out. They're the biggest deliverer of like healthcare and medicines to people outside of the capital. Now he's taking that technology and it's already in America, but he's, he's got licenses now to work across America. But again, the, in the end, there was a there was a during my, my panels there was a philosophical element, there was a historical element, there was a placemaking element. But in the end, it ended with this rather positive conversation about technology and the role that the UAE can play in embracing these things quickly because of their their nimbleness around regulation. That you know they're not an old school, old world democracy where everything takes committees and endless rounds of debate. They can say, look, we want to do this and we'll do it you know, next year. And again, there's a company called Joby Aviation. They're launching the first air taxi. Where are they launching it? They're launching it in Dubai next year because Dubai said, look, I think we can integrate this into our public transport. Come here. We'll change the regulations. We want you to be first here. Andrew Tuck, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle Radio. And finally, on today's Monocle Daily, you may be a fan of the Swedish duo Roxette. I'm certainly finding out that everyone here in the Monocle office is. But what you probably did not know is just how much Brazilians are obsessed with Roxette. Their musical influence lingers in the country so much that the country's charts have been invaded recently by Brazilian versions of their most iconic hits. From country stars to funk artists, it seems everyone wants a little bit of Roxette. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Brazilian himself, of course, explains the obsession and tells us about some of his favorite Roxette covers. Brazilians have something with the Swedish band Roxette. Yes, I know they were fairly popular across the globe, but their influence still lingers in Brazil. I, of course, am a big fan too. So much so that I even cried at the back of a cab in my home city of São Paulo. It was a dark, slightly melancholic evening, and the cab driver just blasted. It must have been love loudly. Tears started to fall. To prove this passion the Brazilians have towards Roxette, there's even a recent trend of doing different versions in Portuguese for their songs. So much so that even Brazilian Daily, who studied São Paulo, contacted the surviving member of the band, Per Gasly, to see what he thought of the versions. He absolutely loved it. Let's start with one of the favorites, the glossy Pede Pra Eu Ficar, performed by drag queen Pablo Vitar. It's a Brazilian take. On Listen to Your Heart. Let's have a listen. Alguma coisa fala o meu coração. Ele me fala, não mereço 
but it seems that Per Gasly reserved more love for the cover of perhaps not the most popular track of Roxette, I Don't Want to Get Hurt, this time performed by Gabi Amarantos in Não Vou Te Deixar. Gabi Amarantos is always great and brought a distinctive Brazilian flavor to the band's melody. And as some of you may know, Brazil's top music genre is sertanejo, think Brazilian country music. So of course those artists still embraced Roxette wholeheartedly. Take one of the country's biggest stars, Gustavo Lima, and his version of It Must Have Been Love. This time it's called Desejo Imortal. Or what about the late country music queen Marília Mendonça and Mayara Imaraíza with Uma Vida a Mais, their version for Listen to Your Heart. Alcance o meu caminho Pensei que fosse nosso Eu pensei Espero mais um dia Ou quem sabe um mês Espero mais um dia Uma vida talvez Brazilians were hooked from the beginning of the band it helped that they were the soundtrack of some of our most popular telenovelas. Think Perigosas Peruas in 1992. It was the theme song of leading lady Cidinha, performed by Vera Fischer. But he wasn't the only one. Their music was part of countless soaps, from O Sexo dos Anjos to Um Anjo Caiu do Céu. And it must be said, they also visited the country countless times. My take about their success in Brazil? We love a good melody and romanticism, and the Swedes of Roxette knows this best. In the interview with Stadão, Per Gasly said he was also listening to Brazilian music from a young age, people like Gilberto Gil. We miss the band, and the shock of vocalist Marie Fredrickson's death still hurts many. But for now, the band is enjoying a sunny revival in Brazil. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco.
Thank you very much, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, for that musical report from Brazil. And that is all the time we have for this extended edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my guests today, Stephen Diao, Natalia Gumenyuk, and Andrew Tuck. Also to Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk team. Today's show was produced by Vincent McAvinney and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our heroic sound engineers for this extended program were Sarah Nichol with editing assistance from Lily Austin and Steph Changu. I'm Chris Termack here in London. The Monaco Daily is back tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for listening.